So we've come to the end of the book of Acts, and fittingly, the last word of the last chapter of this book is unhindered. And that's what I've titled this sermon this morning, Unhindered. That really is a perfect theme. The book of Acts opened with this interaction between Jesus and His disciples in chapter 1 where He tells them, before He's ascended to heaven, He tells them, you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. And we saw when we went through that, there's this progression outward. There's the religious capital of the world, Jerusalem. You're to start there. And then they moved outward. And we followed that. That's exactly Luke's outline for this book. He traced the development of the Gospel and the church on Pentecost in Jerusalem. They expanded outward because of persecution to Judea and Samaria. And then Paul comes along in Acts chapter 9, and he's, Saul at that time, converted, drastically converted, but he becomes what I believe is probably the most important New Testament Christian. And and honestly, maybe my favorite New uh, Bible character to have studied so far. He comes to faith in Acts 9, and he's he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Though he was a Jew of Jews, though he was overly qualified to be an apostle to the Jews, God in His wisdom sent him to the Gentiles and used fishermen, Peter, John, Andrew, the other apostles to be the apostles to the Jews. It's been a wonderful book. I told my dad last night, it almost feels like saying goodbye to an old friend as we wrap this book up. But necessity is laid on me. So we're going to cover chapter 28 today and finish it out. Here's the outline that I'm going to follow. The first point we're going to consider is Paul's ministry at the island of Malta, which will cover verses 1-10. through And it's a picture of humble obedience, which has become characteristic of the Apostle himself. The second point we're going to look at is Paul's ministry at Rome once he finally arrives. That will cover verses 11-28. through And I subtitled that, The Truthful Proclamation. Paul never wavered from it. He meets with his brethren, the Jews, and faithfully proclaims the Gospel. And then we're going to end with the last two verses of the chapter, fruitful evangelism and discipleship. So let's begin. Let's read verses 1-10, through if you will, Acts 28. Luke writes, After we were brought safely through, We then learned that the island was called Malta. Now just to remind you, if you weren't here last week, 27, what Luke's referring to is the shipwreck. They were trying to get to Rome on the ship. They were cut off through storm and and gale. For two weeks they were out at sea until they saw this island in the storm, tried to beach the boat, but hit a reef and got stuck, and they all had to jump off and swim to the island. That's what Luke's referring to. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live." He, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed. And putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This week in study, and really last week I began looking at this, all the commentators in this short little portion of Acts 28 immediately focus on the miracles, the viper bite, Paul's healing of Publius' father, and then the entire island, the village that he was under. And that's not what stuck out to me. We could talk about the viper biting Paul, or we could focus on Paul's extended ministry of healing to those natives, but I'd rather focus this morning on the bundle of sticks that it talks about. Because that's really, in my opinion, what started it all. Jesus had told us in the Gospels that the greatest among you will be what? Least. Will be servant of all. If you remember, what did Paul just get done doing? I quoted Joseph Parker, a a London pastor last week, as saying, Paul entered that doomed ship as a prisoner and ended up becoming its captain. Over and over and over, Paul is the type of person of such character, of such ability, of such insight and discernment, where God continues to raise him up to positions of leadership, to positions where people notice him and he's used to influence. But when they're on the island, what do we find Paul doing? Picking up sticks for the fire. It's said of Jesus by the Apostle Paul himself in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus made himself of no reputation taking on the form of what? A servant. We, he goes on to say, are to imitate that mindset of our Lord. If Jesus, God incarnate, saw it appropriate to become servant of all, then the saying Jesus said is true, servant is not greater than his master. And Paul himself in this passage we find imitating that true principle. Paul the Apostle, Paul the world evangelist, Paul the founder of so many churches throughout the known world, Paul literally the father of faith to thousands of people, is picking up sticks for a fire. Let that sink in. I've literally heard pastors say, They refuse to take out trash. They refuse to clean buildings. They refuse to do that stuff. That reveals more about them than anything else. If we can look at our life, if we can look at a task out there and say, oh, that's not for me, because we deem it unworthy or below us, there's something wrong in our heart that we need to look at. It's an interesting account. In the 1980s, the trash workers in Philadelphia went on strike. 
shut the city down. Now, if you've been to Philadelphia, you know it's a great big city. It was the same year, by the way, that Ronald Reagan was shot, if you remember that. Ronald Reagan, the leader of the free world, shot and was put in a hospital for two weeks. Did you remember that that happened? Did the country survive? Did the country go on though he was in the hospital? Absolutely. But these trash workers going on strike shut down an entire city. In fact, it started to spill over into neighboring cities. What's the point? How many of you would think that trash workers are that important? They are. But so is the President of the United States, correct? Nothing is too small for you to put your hand to. All of it's important, and we are to not seek great things for ourselves. But here's why I wanted to focus on this point. It was through Paul's humble service that God put Paul before the Maltese to see. It's through this humble service that God distinguishes Paul in the eyes of the natives. Why? Because if Paul hadn't been picking up sticks, the snake wouldn't have come out and bit his hand. And if the snake wouldn't have come out and bit his hand, it wouldn't have been a testimony to the fact that God had made a promise to Paul that he's going to Rome. This snake is not going to hinder that. So Paul shakes it off. They first conclude, oh, Paul must be a murderer. He might have escaped the sea. He's not escaping this. Those natives knew that those snakes were deadly. They lived with them. Paul shakes it off. They see nothing happens. What do they do? They change their mind. Oh, you must be a god. Their, their conclusions were both wrong, obviously. But what is God doing? What, what's the point? God uses first His humble service to bring about this encounter with the snake so as to open a door for the gospel with the natives. Do you see that? So many times, church, if you were simply obedient in the small things, if you would simply pick up the sticks, God will open doors of ministry for you that you would never see or know otherwise. But we miss out so often because we, oh, that's below me. As we said, Jesus says to us, the greatest among you will be servant of all. Nobody within the body of Christ is above any duty. I love chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. Here Jesus is about to go to His death, which exalts Him, right? Above every name, Philippians 2 goes on to say. That work of Christ on the cross distinguishes Jesus from anything else. And what's He doing right before it? He's in the upper room washing feet which was usually reserved for the slaves of the day. It was the lowest of the low you could be, and Jesus wraps the cloth around himself, stoops down, and washes their feet. So much so that Peter said, don't wash my feet, Lord. And what's Jesus say? If I don't, you have no part with me. You must enter in, Peter. Humble service leads to fruitful ministry. We could focus on the miracles of Paul. We've seen lots of miracles through Paul in the, the, gospel, or in the book of Acts. But I don't want to focus on that. I wanted you to see first what led to all that ministry opportunity on the island of Malta. It's a great account. I want you to go look at it in depth. 
There's lots of points that could be made, lots of points that commentators focus on that passage of Scripture. In fact, entire sermons are preached just on those ten verses. But I want you to consider the humble service that started it all. And see where you can find ministry opportunity, be obedient, and see what happens. See what happens. There's a principle that Jesus also says, hey, if you're faithful with the little bit you're given, guess what will happen? You'll be given more. You'll be entrusted with more. Why? Because of faithfulness. Paul said that it's incumbent upon any steward that above everything he's found faithful. You're found faithful. Be obedient, church, in the little things. One, you don't know who's watching you. Two, you don't know what other opportunities that will lead to. But it does, and people are watching. So the Lord elevates this humble service by His own example. Here's a, I wanted to quote, this is out of John chapter 13, the account of Jesus washing His disciples' feet. He says this, You call Me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's always blessing connected with obedience. Always in Scripture. The blessing is found in obedience to God's Word. What a wonderful picture. I love that point. Paul picking up sticks leads to greater and greater ministry, an open door for the Gospel. Matthew Henry, that great commentator, says this, You often hear of treasures from shipwrecks sitting off the coast somewhere. But never were any people so enriched by a shipwreck off their coast as these Maltese were. What a great insight is that, right? The treasure wasn't gold, silver, precious stones, jewels. The treasure was a faithful servant who brought the gospel to them. No greater treasure ever was found from a shipwreck. How cool is that? What a wonderful thing in application for us to consider. Second point, let's move on, verses 11 20 through 28. So they stayed on this island for three months. We set sail in a ship, verse 11, that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, so other Christians there. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius. That was about 45 miles south of Rome. And then the Three Taverns, which was about 15 miles south, to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Now, I'm not going to focus on this, but this is a sweet point to me. I don't know how these brothers had heard about Paul's arrival at Rome. I don't know if people at Caesarea had traveled through the land to get to Rome and meet Paul there, if word had spread, whatever. But just think about what kind of encouragement, as it says, Paul took courage. What kind of encouragement? He's, he's coming into Rome in chains with a bunch of other condemned people. 
How encouraging would it be to you to have faithful brothers meet you on the road? That's a sweet point to consider. We'll leave it at that. Verse 16, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. So Paul's arrest was different than his second imprisonment. When he comes to Rome this time, this is his first imprisonment in Rome. And he's got quite a bit of liberty. He's allowed to stay in a house. He had to pay for it. He had to rent it, which he was taking. People from the Philippian church and others were spending, supporting Paul. But he had some liberty under this first arrest. He could receive people. He could entertain guests. As we're going to see in verse 17, three days after he gets to Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews, they objected. I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had done, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made this one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. At this point, what does Paul have to lose in speaking difficult truths? Nothing. But in reality, he had much to lose if he didn't speak the truth. And that's true for all of us. I love this account. As far as we know, this is the last recorded encounter Paul had with the Jews. I don't believe it was the actual last encounter, but it is the last recorded encounter with the Jews. And as his custom, everywhere that Paul went, what did he first do? He sought out his Jewish brothers and pleaded with them. Why? Because salvation, as Jesus himself said, was of the Jews first. And then it was to the Gentiles. It was the hope of Israel. All the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets spoke of this coming Messiah, of this coming kingdom, of salvation through this one. The hope of the resurrection, as he said earlier in the book of Acts. And he put it before him. 
He testified, one about the kingdom of God, and then he tried to convince them of Jesus from both the law and the prophets. Jesus being the fulfillment of all these promises. There's several things I want to point out in this last encounter that that teaches us about ministry in general that we can take from this. First, be consistent in your preaching, in your evangelism. As we just said, everywhere Paul went, even as a prisoner, he was consistent, both in his methodology and in his message. He would seek out the Jews. Most often, they would reject it, so he would what? Turn to the Gentiles. He was consistent, but he was also consistent in his message. He put it out there. He didn't preach trying to gauge the reception of the audience. He preached because it's true. And he forced people to deal with the truth. This is what good preaching does. It doesn't shy away from convicting things. It doesn't shy away even from things that divide. Jesus Himself said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a mother against her daughter, a father against his son. What's He saying? He's forcing people to side on the line of truth. If you remember the Old Testament example, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, right? And what do the children of Israel incite Aaron to do? Make a golden calf and start worshiping it. Behold, here's your God, Israel. And Aaron's words were, hey, they gave me their gold, I threw it into the fire, and this calf popped out. Liar. (laughs) He didn't want responsibility. But Moses comes down and he does this. He draws a line in the sand. Remember that? He says, everyone who's on the Lord's side, come over here. The tribe of Levi steps forward, which is how they became the priestly line. And he tells Levi, go slay your brothers. And they do. Over 3,000 fell that day for their idolatry. That's the idea that Jesus is pointing out. If your priority is not the truth of God... Your priorities are wrong. My brother said this when he was down for the ordination in small group. He said such a good point during that, that we need to keep in balance. Ministry, we care about making relationships with people. We want that. But the priority is not the relationship. Priority is the Word of God. Because when we make relationships priority, we'll start augmenting the Word so that we can preserve what's priority, the relationship. If something in the truth might offend or hinder that relationship, ooh, we better not say that. That's the temptation that happens. And you see that in churches today. They don't want to say difficult things. Why? Because they don't want the relationship hindered. That's never the priority in Scripture. It's always the Word of God. And it forces people to wrestle with these things. Because if they might find themselves in opposition to it, they've got some business to do with the Lord then which we don't really want to do. But it's a good thing. Paul was consistent. Second, he stuck to the essentials. In evangelism, so often we get carried away with so many things. I was just talking to the worship team at practice about this. Um, One of the questions that someone submitted to me to deal with was the whole debate between predestination and free will. Um, I'm not going to try to cover that in one 45-minute sermon. (laughs) But... Um, I did make this comment to them. I said, that's not, that's not a, a, a teaching or a topic you want to take up where people who don't know the Lord are present. 
It's difficult enough for Christians. <laughs> so Paul stuck to the essentials. We find him preaching about the kingdom of God. That's the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. And then telling them about Jesus. You remember what he said to the Corinthian church? When I came to you, I determined, I limited my knowledge to know nothing among you except Jesus and Him crucified. That's, that's the proper take to evangelism. That's what priority means when people who don't know Christ, they need to know about salvation through Jesus. If they have other questions, okay, answer them, but do not get distracted with it. Force them to deal with the essentials. And you'll find that that's usually sufficient. It was in this case. It divided the Jews. Some believed, some didn't. They left divided over the essentials. But that's what they needed to settle. If you don't get the essentials right, there is no hope. The third point is this. Persevere in evangelism. We're told they came after three days. And in verse 23, it says this, from morning till evening he expounded to them. Charles Spurgeon has a very famous devotional called Morning and Evening. You've probably seen it. You might have it. This is where he gets the title from. I don't know that I could endure trying to persuade people from morning till evening that long. That's intense. But he persevered in it. The point for us is this. Sometimes talking to people, persuading people, convincing people, answering questions takes longer than a morning and an evening. Persevere in it. How do you know when to quit? How do you know when enough is enough? How do you know, like Jesus said, that you're starting to throw your pearls before swine to trample underfoot? You don't want to throw the gospel out to people who know they're not going to believe it just to slander it, to trash it. You hold your treasures and the gospel above it all. So how do you know when to, to stop evangelizing? Once they make up their minds, say, mm -mm. okay, I'm turning to the Gentiles then. That's what Paul did, right? He'd reason with the Jews until they said no. And then he'd move on. So if people are entertaining this, and, and it takes three, four weeks of constant morning till evening persuading, you endure for three or four weeks. If it's months, then it's months. If it's a day, it's a day. You persevere in it until they either become believers or they outright reject it. And that brings us to the fourth point. Sometimes people will receive it. Sometimes they don't. In evangelism, guys, the results are not up to you. I have a constant temptation as a pastor and a constant worry um, that the Lord is dealing with me on. I think it's an issue of idolatry in my heart. I spoke to our worship group about this. When I don't get the reception that I expected from people, preaching or teaching or whatever, I can tend to question myself. Maybe I should. I, Bo and Dwayne keep me accountable on, on constantly trying to refine my preaching because it needs to get better. But at the same time, salvation is of the Lord. And if I've been faithful to present the truth, I have to at some point come and say, Lord, the results are in your hand. 
I can't convince the heart. That's the work of your spirit to persuade. And I have to distrust. And if, if I have a mass exodus of people, okay, does that mean I was unfaithful? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes people receive it and sometimes they don't. You don't have to control the results. You're simply commanded to be faithful to share. Jesus gave that illustration in John chapter 4. He's the Lord of the harvest and what He's looking for is laborers because laborers are few. Remember that? There's plenty of work to be done. We need people getting involved. But He's still the Lord of the harvest. Be faithful to share. We find Paul not chasing down those Jews. He made one statement out of the book of Isaiah that divided them. And guess what? Paul let them walk out of his room divided. He didn't try to be peacemaker in that case. They needed to wrestle with the truth. And he let them. Fifth point is this. Tell the truth. Even if it's a stinging indictment as this passage out of Isaiah was, this passage that Luke records is out of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where God recruits Isaiah after Isaiah's vision of the Lord and His holiness. God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And that message, this verse 26 and 27 in, in uh, Acts 28 here, out of Isaiah, is used no less than four times in the Scripture. Jesus used this very same passage in the Gospels. It's recorded in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8 to speak about why He preached in parables to the people. Because of faith or unbelief in their heart. He says, I teach in parables because of this. It weeds out those people who don't believe. Those people who don't believe in Me, they don't get the parables. They see they hear, but they don't see, and they don't hear. There's a spiritual veil, he says, over their eyes in 2 Corinthians 3. It covers their understanding. They're always hearing, they're always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, Paul would write to Timothy. That's the reality of the spiritual dynamic going on in people in churches every Sunday going on in the world. They hear, they hear, they hear, but they don't get it. The light bulb hasn't come on. The Spirit needs to illuminate them according to Ephesians 1, 16 and 17 that give them a heart and a mind of understanding. That's what this, this passage is talking about. Jesus used it for that reason. The Apostle John applied it in his Gospel to the nation of Israel for the same uses. And Paul uses it here in Acts as well as in Romans 11 where he talks about Israel's become hardened because of their unbelief. So it's not a friendly passage to you if you're not trusting in the Lord. It's a stinging indictment. But after Paul had reasoned with them morning through evening, and he could see they just they wouldn't believe it, he towed the line. He pulled a Moses and drew a line in the sand. He says, the Lord was right to say this about you. You always hear, but don't. And he left it at that. Speak the truth. That's all we're called to, church. Be faithful. Be faithful with this treasure that He's given us. If there's a great principle in this last chapter of the book of Acts, it's that. Be faithful with what's been entrusted to you. Let's go on to the last point here. Verse 30 and 31. 
So Luke writes this, he lived, that's Paul lived there in Rome for two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I love this point. We're told by Luke that Paul was under house arrest for two years. Now, if you put that together with the two years he was at Caesarea, that's four years of his life. That's a long time. What were you doing four years ago? (laughs) Paul would still be in chains. And the whole time he's been faithful. But he's in Rome now, and Luke tells us he welcomed all who came to him. I almost titled the sermon that. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) Here the Lord is faithful to bring ministry opportunity to Paul. He couldn't leave the house. He was confined to the, the room he was in. But what's the Lord do? He's bringing people to Paul. That's what the Lord will do for you. And we find, as Paul's welcoming any, without bias, without hindrance, he's welcoming any who would hear. (laughs) Doesn't matter, Romans, Jews, whoever. He welcomed all. That word welcome, by the way, has this idea of joyful welcoming. Isn't that cool? It tells me this. Paul's not upset at all that he's in prison. That was not the issue for Paul. Whether he's in a prison cell on a sinking ship, Caesarea, or walking around Europe somewhere. <laughs> That's what he cared about, being faithful. So here's the two things, and this is, this is so cool. All right, Follow me with this. We're told he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, how it all began, the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God is poured out on the church. What's Peter start doing? Evangelizing. Preaching the kingdom. Thousands come to faith. And what do they start doing in Acts 2.42? One of my favorite verses. They start devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, the breaking of bread, to fellowship, discipleship. That's what that is. The two great pillars of the church that we are always to be about. Evangelism and discipleship. Preach the kingdom of God and then build up the saints. Teach them about who Jesus is. Teach them about how to walk in Christ. Teach them about what Jesus has accomplished for you and is still accomplishing for you. Do the great work of evangelism. Paul's confined to a cell in Rome, but I want you to see something. His influence and reach from this prison cell in Rome is still affecting us today. That's why I love the word unhindered, without hindrance. Let's check this out. During this time, we know this first imprisonment, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, and the letter to Philemon. How many of you have been blessed by those letters? Paul's still reaching out of that prison cell and influencing you unhindered. Do you see that? Isn't that cool? Let me point out some of the truths that he talked about. As we're looking at this great work that Acts opens up with, evangelism and discipleship, and it closes with evangelism and discipleship. In the book of Ephesians, for instance, the two great themes of that book are these. God has reconciled all creation to Himself through Christ, and secondly, He's brought together all things in His Son to create one body, discipleship and evangelism. You see that? 
So Paul's teaching the saints in Rome about discipleship and evangelism, but he's also busy writing that letter to the Ephesians. Hey, remember these points. He's teaching about evangelism and discipleship. Let me read one passage out of Ephesians for you. This is Ephesians 2, 13-16. Paul writes, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's evangelism. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing that law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. There's discipleship. We've come together as a body of Christ from different backgrounds, different beliefs. We've come together in Christ. And then the rest of Ephesians, what's he do? He starts talking about discipleship. Here's how to live. Here's how to put on the armor of God. Here's how to agree with one another and forgive one another. It's discipleship. What about Colossians? Colossians, again, we see Paul writing about Christ being preeminent over all creation, including the spiritual invisible realm. Christ has secured redemption for His people, he says in 13 and 14 of chapter 1. There's the gospel. There's evangelism. Redemption has been been given to us. Consequently, we can now, as His disciples, participate in His holiness through His death and resurrection. There's discipleship. Let me read a passage there. This is chapter 3, 1-4 of Colossians. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You see Paul doing this work? Evangelism, discipleship, evangelism, discipleship. Philemon is the book of the runaway slave, Onesimus. Philemon was the master. Somehow Onesimus comes across Paul's path. Paul makes him a son in the faith and tells, writes back to Philemon, hey, I'm sending your runaway slave back to you. But I'm not sending him back as a slave. I'm sending him back as a brother. And I want you to receive him as a brother. Evangelism and discipleship. (laughs) My favorite, though, is the book of Philippians If you want to turn there with me. Paul writes to that church out of this prison cell. And it's so great. So many things in this book of Philippians are summarized for Christians. The proper outlook of our faith, how to make progress in growth as disciples, the example of Christ, and so on. But look at chapter 1, verse 12 with me. Now remember, Paul's in Rome. He's chained to a Roman guard. He has people coming and going out of his house, but he's constantly chained to these soldiers. And here's what he writes. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Is that not evangelism? But he goes on. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now here's discipleship. And for the most Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There's discipleship. But he ends the book with this statement. Chapter 4, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of who? Caesar's household. 
Paul had penetrated the very top echelon of the world by his imprisonment. Is that not cool? You see what being faithful will lead to? There's no other way Paul could have reached Caesar's household unless it was through chains. Do you realize that? He couldn't have just walked into Caesar's household and said, hey, I got something to say. The Lord knew what He was doing in transforming the world. (laughs) And it took a willing servant to be obedient and say, Lord, if it's in chains that I need to go to Rome, I'll endure it. And when he got in that situation, it was hard, it was dirty, it was difficult, it was costly, but Paul's faithful. He's preaching the gospel and he's discipling the saints. How fruitful was Paul during this time of his life? Church, here's the point for you. If you think that the circumstances you're in are a hindrance, you don't know the power of Christ. And you need to come trust it. There is no circumstance that I read in Scripture that's a hindrance. Do you realize that? I read in Scripture this, Romans 8.28. God causes what? All things to work together for bad? Good. Do you believe that? It's not God can cause all things together work together for good. God does cause all things to work together for good. You know what that means? There is not one circumstance, there is not one thing that will hinder you unless you let it. No sickness, no trial, no persecution, nothing can be against you. And if this passage, these last two verses, don't teach us that, I've completely missed it. Paul's influence from this Roman cell, as you agreed, is still influencing the world. The fruit is incredible, unhindered. What an appropriate last word for the book of Acts. In his last letter to Timothy, in the last letter of his life, as far as we know, here's what Paul said. This is during his second imprisonment. He says this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. What a cool, cool example. I read a story of an Iranian prisoner real quick, and then I'll wrap this up. In the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, in prison for his faith, he, his son, his relatives, all thrown in Iran's prisons. If you read anything about Iran, their prisons are notorious for being awful. He's thrown in there because he's a Christian. Well, he's in there, he knows that the guards can't read English. So he asks his family to write down scripture verses in English because they think it's just a journal. So the family's writing Bible verses in English. They begin to put the Bible together <laughs> in prison and translate it into Farsi so that other prisoners could read. They start having Bible study in the Iranian prisons. The guards find out, and guess what they try to do? They break them up and spread them out all over the prison, thinking that'll stop it. Uh, (laughs) The Word of God's not bound. So it actually forced the spread of the Gospel. So they took the main guy, this pastor, and put him in what's called hell. 
is where all the death sentence guys go. And guess what? They're all getting saved right before they're hanged. <laughs> the Iranians were so frustrated with this guy. Guess how they got rid of him? Guess how they stopped the spread of the gospel in the prison? Let him out. <laughs> What a bold man. Unhindered. It's Paul. So the end has come. Luke ends this book with no mention made of Paul's second imprisonment. After the book of Acts, we know that Paul was released for a short time. He would travel to Spain, according to Romans 15, verse 224 through 28. That's a typo, by the way. It's not 224 verses. Man, Paul had a lot to say. Also during his second release, he would write the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy as well as Titus. We're told he left Titus in Crete to establish elders. This was during the time in between his first and second imprisonment. He left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor that church. And we're told he left Trophimus sick at Miletus. But Paul would be arrested again very soon in 60, around 67 AD. It was about three to four years after this account in, in Acts. And this second imprisonment would lead to death for him. In fact, the early church father, you've probably heard his name, Chrysostom, said that the emperor Nero was so enraged with Paul, he had his head cut off. And the reason was, was because Paul led one of this emperor's mistresses, his favorite mistress, to faith. <laughs> if you know anything about Nero, he was a bloodlustful man, incredibly violent. And it was under him that tradition tells us Paul's head was taken from him. But we're also told in 2 Timothy, very end, chapter 4, that the first time, as we read in Acts, they were coming to him, they were encouraging him. But sadly, in Paul's second imprisonment, everyone abandoned him. Except Luke, he says. Even Demas, the trusted worker Demas, who with, went with him on his missionary journeys, left him. So after this book of Acts, it got harder for Paul. It did. He was left alone, except Luke. What a courageous man Luke was. But I want to read it's the last scripture here, and then I'll read a quote for you. 2 Timothy. Though Paul was abandoned, though his life was taken in such an undignified way, here's how Paul approached his end. This is 2 Timothy 4. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who has loved His appearing. Paul's race ended victorious. What a fitting end. I want to read this quote from, as you know, one of my favorite pastors says this about the book of Acts. The book is over and there's no further record. Why not? Because more was unnecessary. The same story will be repeated in every decade, in every century, in each millennium until the Lord shall come. And to write the whole history was unnecessary. Enough was written to reveal the secret of power, to bring into the light the perpetual perils threatening the church, to indicate directions, to provide all that was necessary for the church to fulfill its mission till the consummation of the age. We're done with Acts, church, but we're not done with Acts. 
It's just been passed on to us until the Lord comes. With that, we're going to pray and sing about the Lord's coming. Father God, what a great journey through this book it's been. What an encouragement to me. Father, in trying to learn these lessons of faith, lessons of identity, who we are in Christ, who you are in your church, how you lead, how you guide, how you deliver, both from and to persecution. And how in all things you've been faithful, God. And you call us to be faithful. As Paul would write to the Corinthian church, it was his desire to be pleasing to you. That's it. So Lord, make that our desire. Father, we want to be a church passionate about Jesus, not just about religion, not just about dogmatics. We want to be passionate about what Christ has done for us, what He continues to do for us. Father, You are faithful to Your church until the day comes when we see You face to face. As Peter writes, that will be the fullness of our salvation revealed. We will be transformed from these lowly bodies into Your glorious One, and we will finally get to see You face to face, which no man has ever done. What a day, Lord. We pray that that day comes quickly. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.